right. Thank you for joining Cauldron, a military history podcast. I'm your host, Cullen, and today we are covering a really exciting battle. It's the Battle of Konigratz, July 3rd, 1866. This is a really fascinating little battle. Well, not little, it's a rather large battle for the time period, but it's interesting because it's a nexus point with, uh, with technological advancements and strategic and tactical advancements and diplomatic shifts. And really, it's, it's a, a very early glimpse of what will eventually be the 20th century. Uh, you have Prussia and Austria both vying for, for power over the German states, and they are going to duke it out to decide who will control or have control over the largest most powerful central state in Central Europe. So at this point, Germany, as we know it, is not yet constituted. It's a kind of constellation of smaller states. By the end of the 1860s, Germany, as we know it, will be a thing, and that will really decide what happens over the next 100, 150 years. So... Um, this is a, a really important point in, in world history, but specifically in German history. A quote that I want to kind of have percolating for you as we have this conversation about Konigratz is from the book The Allure of Battle by Cathal Nolan in the Battle Exalted chapter. It's, quote, Generations die, new ones forget the last war, and technology keeps changing. This is a, a, an important quote, I think, because when you're talking about Konigratz, we're talking about the generation that I was either was born just after or was very young at the age of Napoleon. So while Napoleon is rampaging across Europe and making his way into, into Russia, you're talking 18... 1798 to 1814, or I think uh, Waterloo was 1815. So, you know, roughly the first 15 years of the 1800s is dominated by Napoleon and the wars of Napoleon. Comes the, uh, the, the Conference of Vienna and Metternich system, and you have relative peace throughout Europe. This political stability was something that was very rare in European history, and it was fairly quiet within Europe itself. Now, that doesn't mean there wasn't conflict and wars happening. They were. But you didn't have massive coalition-style wars where individual countries were t trying to annihilate uh, other countries throughout this time period. You did have uh, the the Crimean War, and you had eventually you'll have the Franco-Prussian War, but even those were smaller in terms of what Europe was used to, and and less um, they weren't quite as uh, devastating in terms of you didn't have one country trying to dominate all the other countries of Europe. Uh, even when when eventually we do talk about the Franco-Prussian War. It's not that Germany was trying or Prussia was trying to destroy and, and completely dominate all of France. It was trying to assert itself in a, a position of power. It basically was just trying to get its seat at the table on a grand scale and, you know, and give France a bloody nose in the process, which it did. Uh, but 
back to what we're talking about today, Conagret, this little Austro-Prussian war, little in terms of the scale, um, but not little in terms of numbers and, and the fighting, um, is a really great example of what's called a cabinet's krieg or a cabinet war. It's a very uh, well-planned, well-defined, strategically small in terms of what the point of the, the campaign would be and what the point of the war and the goals of the war is. Uh, in, in Cabinets Kriegs are not common anymore, or they weren't after the Austro-Prussian War and then up until right after World War II. Most wars now are kind of in that realm of Cabinets Krieg where one country is trying to just gain something on another country. Uh, whether the in the in terms of the United States involvement, uh, you certainly see large scale wars with all out total war mentality. Uh, but it's just the United States and typically European countries aren't doing that as much as they they were before the uh, uh, the last hundred and fifty or so years. So yeah, Cabinet's Krieg is is one that's more defined than say an all out war amongst nations and populations in arms. All parties fight with an agreed context of the limited means and, and appropriate ends. Not necessarily all parties, but typically they, they understand, okay, we're fighting over this little territory or this province, or I'm fighting to gain a colony, and that's all you're going to have to give up. A great example of that is the, uh, the Battle of Solferino, where the Austro-Hungarian Emperor Franz Joseph, who is also the emperor at the time of Konigrat, famously loses to the French, and he says, quote, I have lost a battle, I pay with a province, end quote. So the loser knows that they're not going to have the enemy marching through their capital, in all likelihood, and the winner knows that they're not going to really push their victory too far. Otherwise, then you do end up with a fight to the death and to the last man kind of uh, mentality amongst both participants. And that doesn't help anybody. It certainly doesn't help the economies or the trade networks of either uh, belligerent. Little context, before the, the battle and the Austro-Prussian War, you had the Holy Roman Empire, which Voltaire famously said was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, and then that got reorganized by Napoleon into a, uh, again, a constellation of states, uh, a con conglomeration of a few large, and then a bunch of medium, and then a, a, a sprinkling of tiny uh, miniature-sized states. And then the two largest powers within what was at one point the Holy Roman Empire was the, the state of Prussia, which was the smaller of the two, had about half the population of Austria. But at this point in time, the Industrial Revolution is booming and Prussia is just absolutely taking advantage of it economically. It's tapping into its natural resources like iron and coal, and it's using that central position that it holds very, very, uh, very well for its trade. Now, the central position was both a, a very... Uh, helpful and useful tool in terms of its economic growth, but it was a constant 
strategic and diplomatic concern because obviously being in the middle of all the other great powers puts you in a position where you you don't have as much say over your destiny as you might want uh if you're if you're always afraid of what your enemies are going to do it's going to create a complex a a a very significant one in terms of the prussian military state of mind austria the southern larger part of the uh the reorganized holy roman empire not quite germany yet uh austria is this old very very powerful state it's huge it's revered as one of the true old boys in the great game but it's kind of hollow economically it's always on the the very brink of financial collapse and its large population which is great to have big population but it was uh it was a very ethnically and linguistically diverse uh population so it causes a great deal of confusion and a lot of uh, crisis within its military because you're you're at a disadvantage if you're not all speaking the same language, thinking the same way. Because of of the diversity, you have it. It almost is a weakness in terms of of creating a strong military. The Austrians are also led by an incredibly old family, the Habsburgs. They are. A little slow to to adopt change. the The pace of change within the Austrian military is glacial at times, uh, and it's also just absolutely rife with nepotism and and personal rivalries and and fairly large, uh, just kind of rank incompetence. It seems, uh, particularly at the the leadership level, uh, and. What we're about to get into, the Austro-Prussian War, is a war that will decide who is going to control the future and, and guide Germany into the, the next you know, century. And, and who will actually be in control once Germany is united, and, and both countries, and it's probable that most countries in Europe knew that this was coming. You see it in Italy, you see it in a few different places that unification is on the way. So this this war, and particularly the Battle of Konigratz, is a deciding factor in who's going to control the destiny of Germany. Is it going to be a Prussian Germany, or is it going to be an Austrian Germany? And that will really define the character of Germany at this early stage. Um, and as history will show, uh, it, it definitely is an important thing to consider because a Prussian-led Germany is vastly different than an Austrian-led Germany. And specifically, a Prussian-led Germany, and that's what Bismarck and Moltke and, and the, the Kaiser, that's what they wanted because that would give Prussia final say in all things Germany. And really it would relegate Austria to a, a lesser state or a little brother in this, uh, in this upcoming unified Germany. Austria, however, would have wanted to just kind of keep the status quo. Uh, it would have likely wanted to unify to some degree, but not, not really trying and create a single state um, under Austrian control because it, it would have been 
too much for them to to uh, digest. Instead, Austria would have wanted to just kind of keep things going the way it was going, uh, maybe take from Prussia a little bit of land and whatnot, but then really just kind of keep coasting. So the the goal for Prussia here, they're going to use a Kabinetskrieg, but the the purpose is to use that Kabinetskrieg to, in a sense, achieve a Vernichtenskrieg, which is a war of annihilation. Prussia wants to remove Austria from the equation and ideally replace it at the table of the, the, the world powers of the, the great game. So for Prussia, this is everything. For Austria, this is a comeuppance and a kind of um, an unwanted fight. Austria is not really looking to get in to this kind of uh, massive battle for for the the future and the domination of the German state as it will be. Now, I just mentioned Bismarck. Bismarck is the Iron Chancellor, one of the great statesmen of all time, a true visionary who actually hated war. He has this uh, this kind of warmonger uh, vibe to him that he's been given, this, this attitude that he's all about blood and iron, but he really didn't like war because war was too much out of his control. He couldn't really grapple it and, and make it work for him for sure. Now, that's an interesting thing because actually I can think of few statesmen who did make war work for them as well or as much as Bismarck, but that doesn't mean that he liked using it. It was too chaotic. It was too up to uh, up to variables that were out of his control. He really he loved the uniforms. He loved the pins and all the pomp and circumstance, but he really de- detested the chaos and the messiness of war. And he hated the fact that he also had to rely on others to achieve his ends. So when he's wheeling and dealing and writing letters and schmoozing and, you know, whatever goes into being the Iron Chancellor, that's him. That's with his, uh, he knows exactly what he's doing. Now, when he has to go to a guy like Moltke or the German general staff or war cabinet at this time, he's saying to them, I need this particular province under our control. I'm not going to tell you why, but I just need that. And then it's up to them to do it. So he doesn't have control over exactly how they go about it, which could be a problem. Specifically on the diplomatic level, that could be a real issue. An example of this is the Schleswig-Holstein War, the War of 1864 or the Danish War. Those are all the same, but uh, uh, it's this first move towards ultimate control. It's the first play that Bismarck is really letting the dice flow. Uh, he's throwing them out there and seeing what happens. And it's a very short, it's a very lopsided war. Austria and Prussia, interestingly, are on the same side. They're allied here. And they end up wrapping up this war very quickly. The Elbe duchies are torn from Denmark, and the the Austrians and the Prussians each get these little duchies right on the border with Prussia and Denmark, and it's very low stakes, low risk uh, conflict, but it was a, a very perfect example of a Kabinetskrieg. Uh, it allowed Bismarck to really test the waters in the uh, diplomatic realm to see 
how will France react? How does Russia and Britain react if Prussia is waging war for limited goals? But still, it's, it's, it's a potential conflagration. If something goes wrong and things get out of hand, this could turn into a, a larger European war. And so Bismarck really wants to make sure that he knows how the French are going to respond, how the British are going to respond. And so he does that in this Danish war. Uh, and this l- puts him on the road towards the eventual war with Austria, and then even further down the road with France. And I also mentioned the German war cabinet and Moltke the Elder. The, the, at this point in history, uh, a war cabinet or a war college, it's very, very new. The idea that you would try and dilute the the mind of uh, of your military you know all the di- different people involved in your military if you were able to try and dilute it down to one way of thinking that's very new to uh, the military realm now Moltke is famous for being the kind of the epitome of a uh, war cabinet German war college or war cabinet mind and he's famous for saying, quote, war is always more unpredictable than knowable by military theory, full of confusion, effort, chance, and hot wagers on iron dice and cold steel, end quote. Now, that's somebody who knows exactly the chaos that's involved, but he's still going to try and, and make war knowable by military theory. Uh, he is a key member in the creation of the War Cabinet and the continuation and growth of that War Cabinet, which would eventually become the German General Staff and the, the you know, diluted down in World War One and World War Two into the German General Staff that we know uh, and think of is whenever we, we come across it. Uh, Moltke used his advantages of speed and movement and his decentralized command with, with really, truly Clausewitzian war principles and, and loved the idea of, of pinning the enemy at the front and then hitting him simultaneously in the flank and rear. Uh, it's, this is where you start to really see the, uh, the Hannibalic, the canny-like desire to enclose and encompass your enemy in a cauldron. The, the, this is the namesake of the, the, the podcast is, is the cauldron battle, um, thus creating a, kind of a, a Kesselschlag. That's what it is, the, the cauldron battle. Um, and it, it basically encircles your enemy and then annihilates them. This is the goal of the, the Schlieffen plan. And it starts here with Moltke's desire, his dream, his obsession to a certain degree of of encircling your enemy and completely annihilating them. And he's also using new technologies to try and achieve that, especially here at Konigratz. One of those new technologies is the train. Uh, In the 1840s, Moltke started seeing the implications of the rise of the rail line, and he sees it before pretty much anybody else. And by, by the 1850s, the German states have a ton of railroads, a ton of trains, and they're just growing and growing into the 1860s. So, and he sees the implications here. He also understands the usages. Uh, he, he has a bunch of funds 
that get shifted from fortress building to rail lines. Now, that is some serious foresight. A lot of countries at this point are thinking, well, the guns are getting bigger and more powerful, so the forts have to become bigger and more powerful. Moltke says no. Don't put any more money into these forts. They're just going to get blown up. What we need to do is figure out a way to get more men to the area of crisis or the important places faster than anybody else. And the only way to do that, in his mind, and and turns out correctly, is through uh, investing in rail lines. So the German states are really starting to get connected. This is another step in the direction of unification. The other thing that Moltke is 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 going to take advantage of at Konigratz, or maybe not take advantage of, but to certainly benefit from, is the creation, uh, the invention, and then the usage of the Dreiss needle gun. The Dreiss needle gun is a breech-loading rifle. It uses this needle-like little pin to stab the paper cartridge, which strikes a percussion cap, ignites the mini-explosion in the barrel that propels the bullet down the rifled barrel. That all sounds very straightforward, but it's an innovative uh, design, and it really changes the effect that an infantryman can have on the battlefield. It adds another 3,000 feet of range from the Napoleonic musket. It makes the rate of fire absolutely devastating. It allows an individual soldier to reach completely new heights of murderousness on the battlefield. It also allows them to kneel or to lie prone while reloading, which was in its own way kind of a leap in in, in defensive tactics. Because before this, if you had a musket, you'd have one shot, then you'd have to stand up, reload, ram home, cock it, aim, fire. Now, you had to do all that standing. At this point with the Dreiss needle, you can do that while kneeling. You can do that while lying down behind a barrel, behind a cart, on the roof of a house, on a porch, wherever you are. If you can find cover, you can fire from behind that cover and still reload and remain hidden. Uh, Or, you know, if, if you're out in the open, just lying down and doing it, is is instantly a far more protected way of of fighting, which maybe you don't kill more of the enemy, which I think you would, but just say, for, for instance, say both sides are firing the same uh, rate, but one side can reload while kneeling or, or lying down, the other side still has to stay standing, you are not taking as much damage. You might not be giving necessarily more, but you are taking less. Uh, but in this instance, you are definitely dealing out more damage than than you're taking. Um, these rifles were expensive, for sure. They had a lot of moving parts. They were all um, fairly expensive. But they they provided with such a high rate of fire that you had almost like this is this is not quite machine gun rate, but we're we're getting closer and closer to those the weapons of the First World War. Uh, and the problem with a weapon like this, though, is that it's not very useful to an untrained soldier. So the Habsburgs and the Austrians, they really don't, they don't want to spend the money in training and in using rounds. Uh, you, you know, if you're training soldiers with weapons like this, they have to fire the guns, which means that you have to use ammo, which is all kind of sunk cost, but... The Austrians aren't seeing it like that. They see that as unnecessary. They'd rather just 
call up a, a whole bunch of guys and just slap a musket in their hands and then march them out and hope that the zeal of the offensive and the 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 military fervor and excitement of the moment will help them win the day. Whereas because of the war cabinet, because of that idea of diluting military thought and theory in war into a workable algorithm, uh, the Prussians are able to take that and apply it to the idea of training. Uh, and so the men that they are going to send to Konigratz are extremely, extremely well-trained and, and able to use their weapons to the utmost. So let's get right into the battle. Uh, the war begins with Bismarck using kind of a mix of his own manipulations and machinations to make this war happen. He forced a, a very reluctant Kaiser Wilhelm I in fanning the flames of a post-war debate with Austria over the spoils of that 1864 Danish war. Bismarck gets his doorway to unification by convincing Kaiser Wilhelm to really put some pressure on the Austrians that they are not following through with their uh, agreed part in the the demands after the, the Danish war. Now, the Austrians were... Uh, it was kind of out of nowhere because the Austrians were, weren't really doing anything, but Bismarck does a little bait and switch here and it catches the Austrians fairly flat footed. Uh, she's got this ethnically divided hodgepodge army of conservative insular thinking officers and they're pretty, uh, they're very stuck in their old ways. Uh, the, the ways and wars of the ancient regime, um, and the Habsburgs really, they don't want to fight. They, they don't want to get involved. They just want to keep on keeping on. Bismarck isn't having any of that. Uh, the Habsburgs, like I said a few moments ago, they, they haven't really invested in rail lines or guns or anything like that. Although their artillery is fairly good, they're still lose, using the muzzle-loading Lawrence rifle, and they're relying on mass charges and esprit de corps to, to win the day for them. Honestly, it's insane to me to think about it, but they, they did the same thing at the beginning of World War I. Uh, they, have, they really don't change very much in the way they fight until the very end of their existence as a nation. So, um, so the Austrians aren't really ready for any kind of fighting, but they are forced into this, this conflict by Bismarck. They're cornered into it, and they are about to be faced by a fairly large Prussian army. The Prussians roll out four armies. They amount to somewhere around a quarter million men. They are the first and second and the Elbe and the West. They're all, all four of these are headed towards Bohemia, which is held by the Bund forces. These Bund forces are federal forces. So again, it's all these smaller countries Hess, Bohemia, they all have their own little individual forces that when combined, they create the Bund, and they are allied with Austria. Uh, Moltke moves his quarter-million-man army on these purpose-built rail lines that are some 90 to 120 miles apart, and they're all concentrating down on the, the, the southern, co southern border which is the northern Austrian border, and they're about to face the Austrian North Army, which is 
slow moving. It's exactly what you'd think an Austrian Habsburg army would be. It's slow moving. It's disorganized. It doesn't seem to be coherently led. Uh, and again, Austria is that nation of the status quo. They're not aggressive. Uh, it's not trying to off uh, wrong foot Moltke and the Prussians. It, the idea is let them come. We're going to sit on our strategic defensive. We've got 245,000 men in the North Army, and we'll just occupy the lines of defense around Olmutz in Moravia and hope that the Prussians crash against our defensive uh, defensive line and beat themselves up, and then we don't really have to do anything. Uh, they, the Austrians did have two smaller armies, one of about 60,000 on the, the Iser River and another 130,000 holding the Italian border. Um, the Italians are always ready to, to hop on the Austrians back whenever they're facing somebody else. So they have to keep that fairly well defended, uh, and they do that with 130,000 men. They could have swung either one of these armies in to add to the North Army and really just give it overwhelming numerical superiority. Superiority, excuse me. They don't. Uh, it's a failing of the general on the Austrian side, General Ludwig von Bendick. Uh, again, he is what you'd expect of a, a Austrian Habsburg general. This is the guy who lost the Battle of Solferino. For some reason, the Emperor of Austria, Franz Joseph, really holds him in high esteem, but he seems to be very, very lethargic. Um, he's taking his 200, almost 250,000 men on the 17th of June, and he moves them in three long columns running for miles, and they make their way to the uh, defensive line in northern Austria. Um, and it's just... He's, he's, he's slow moving. He's not thinking of, of how to outwit or, or wrong foot Moltke. And you can tell, uh, and eventually once we get to the battle itself, you see him making mistakes that are as a Monday morning quarterback, it's easy for me to point them out. I'm sure at the time it seemed like the right move, but we know that it wasn't because even his own officers at the time were clamoring for him to do different things that might have gone. In fact, this battle is a lot closer than history remembers it. And had he made certain moves at certain times, it's very possible that it had gone the other way. And and here's a point that Bendik isn't incorrect with, is he knows that Moltke is moving his four armies in four separate, uh, along four separate routes. And he's hoping to catch each one and defeat them in detail, or at least defeat one or two of them and then have enough of a, a head start to be able to turn on the other two once they combine and defend himself. The problem is that's a great idea and a great strategy if you can do it. If you can't do it, then there's really nothing to be gained. There's no point in it. Uh, and unfortunately for Bendik, the Austrians can't do it. They're just too outdated, too cumbersome, too outmoded, and they advance... Uh, even slower than they normally would have because they're waylaid by bad weather. The mud is just unbearable, and it creates huge traffic jams. They're just not able to move because they just 
they didn't invest in the, the rail lines like Moltke. Now, Moltke, because the Austrians are moving so slowly, Moltke and the Prussians, they have time to smash that Bunz army, that Bund that we talked about a few minutes ago. They come up against a few small armies uh, in Hanover, Kassel, and Saxony, and they are able to capture Dresden within the first 48 hours of the campaign. So really quickly, Moltke and the Prussians knock out a couple of enemy armies, they capture a major city and use that as a hub moving forward, and they do that within the first two days of the fighting. The little lead-up to the war and that we see with the, the Austrians is this is called the Bundeskrieg, or the War of the Federals. It ends on the Battle of uh, Langenzella in, uh, on June 27th and 28th. There are a few missteps here or failings of the Prussian side that had Moltke uneasy, but he, he had to keep moving forward. So I guess uh, what I was, I'm trying to say there is that in this small war, the Bundeskrieg, that is the lead up to the main event, essentially, you see a few things that the Prussians aren't able to do and it worries Moltke, but he can't really, the, the, the move has been made, and so he can't really undo it. He can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Uh, a few things that the Prussians did wrong or, or poorly against the Bundeskrieg is their artillery pieces aren't as up-to-date as their rifles, so the artillery wasn't really as powerful as they were hoping. The cavalry isn't as effective as they were hoping. And the men are starting to get tired pretty early on. Even though they're using trains, even though the, they've got the rail lines, the infantry is coming in a little bit more um, beat up than they were hoping. So that's happening this early on. So Moltke knows two things. A, he knows that he's got to get these guys to the battlefield as quick as possible. And B, he knows that if they lose that battle that's coming as quick as possible, this war can't drag out too much longer. So that means that whenever he can find the Austrians and get them to grips, it's got to be a decisive moment. It has to be an all-or-nothing battle because he's not sure that he's going to be able to continue uh, campaigning indefinitely and winning. And while the Prussian West Army had been dealing with these Federals, the Bundeskrieg, the other three armies had moved without issue into Bohemia, each pretty expertly uh, using the, the specially devised rail lines and utilizing roads that were marked out in months in advance. Uh, and then all these armies are marching separately, and then they plan to fight jointly. So it's a very, uh, Moltke's movement into Bohemia with his first three armies as the West Army deals with these little Bundeskrieg fightings. Uh, he's using Napoleonic theory here, where you're marching separately, and then at the moment of, of importance or the key moment, they combine and they fight jointly. It's going to be a very successful strategy, but dangerous, at, as we'll see, if you, if you start the fighting without your full fighting complement. Uh, the first encounters between the Prussian and Austrian forces came about the, on the 26th as Prussian units forced the passes of the giant mountains and made contact with enemy forces along the Iser River. Now, these are nasty, bloody fights that kind of foreshadow the entirety of Konigratz. 
the casualties among the Austrians were huge, almost a four to one advantage, even five to one in some units with the Austrians getting completely mauled and, and they fought well. So they were fighting well and bravely and they were still getting stomped on. And they did eventually resort to these old school uh, swarm and storm columns and they just got mowed down and, and it proved that that old style fighting was going to be useless against the Dreis needle gun. But the Austrians don't learn that early lesson. And so the battle that comes after the, the, the Battle of Konigratz is just going to be a masterclass in why it's important to learn the lesson. Learn the lesson. Uh, the Austrians, which is, again, as we've said over and over, are ethnically extremely diverse and uh, multicultural. They've got Magars, Slovaks, Poles, Romanians, and even ethnic Germans, and they are all sorts of uniforms. There's just a myriad of different colors and different styles, and you're going to see that the the Prussians enter the battlefield wearing their blue-black or Bunkelblau uniform, and it's very, very standardized. And so it's just going to be this, again, This the highlight here is that you've got these two just totally different styles and ways of thinking and seeing war and fighting. And the, the one that we know uh, wins is the Prussians, and that's what we're going to see for the next 150. This is where that idea of Prussian invincibility that was so popular in in 1914 at the outset of world war one where it was just the idea of these almost robotic prussians taking the battlefield this is where that's born now let's get to the battle so as as moltke is moving his armies through the bunsphere bunsweer and is dealing with these small fights and eventually taking its place in bohemia bendek isn't staying stationary he's moving closer and closer he's trying to move further and further west to get closer and closer to that 60,000-man army of the Iser. He's hoping to add those numbers to his own. That would put him over 300,000 men uh, and would hopefully give him enough of an advantage to, to take any kind of fight from Moltke. But uh, Bendik doesn't make it there because he's just not able to get across Bohemia quickly enough. It's at this point that Bendik makes another fatal mistake. He, he sees the streaming lines of the um of the prussians coming down but instead of putting the pedal to the metal and just hauling across bohemia to reach that icer force he goes and and he he reorients his line of campaign and access and moves to the north to just offer battle to moltke it's a terrible idea if he had just continued further and ignored what Moltke was doing, eventually Moltke would have to follow him and then fight on his grounds. Instead, Bendek is going to move north, face north, reorient his whole army, and then offer battle to the Prussians. Even though he gets to pick the grounds, or he essentially gets to pick where he wants to fight, he's put the initiative in the hands of his enemy. And he's thinking that along uh, a line along the Elbe would give him the upper hand of interior lines, but it it it's a good. I mean, in theory, it's right, but it doesn't actually work out the way he was planning. 
because Bendik had failed to reach the army of the Iser, and so failed to, in his mind at least, to secure safety. But he still maintained an overwhelming numerically superior force. It should have been enough, if not to win, then at least to blunt the Prussian advance into Bohemia and into Austrian territory. It was uh, not the case. Bendek realized his only hope was to defeat in detail the Prussian armies as they arrived to the battlefield. This picking off one at a time of the much smaller enemy armies was a smart plan like we talked about a little while ago. The, uh, the whole defeat in detail gameplay has worked many times from ancient uh, time periods to Napoleon to Lee, but Bendek was not the guy to make it work. And beyond that, the general Austrian system was not the system for complex, time-sensitive, synchronized operations. The diversity of language and thought combined with the rivalry and nepotism made for a dangerously rigid and operationally inept force. All Bendek could do, with any degree of certainty, was sit tight and hope that the Prussians would break against his defensive line. Bendek bulged his center out from the Elbe, thinking this would give him a good position to split the Prussians once they had been weakened by the Austrian defensive fire. So he was hoping that the Prussians would crash up against the protruding center of his line, and then once the moment was right, Bendek planned to push his own force through that center and in, out into the, the Prussian center and hopefully snap it like a twig. But Bendek didn't see what even one of his most junior officers recognized as obvious. The officer in question wrote, quote, What this really means is that now the Prussians can hit us from three directions. What a stupid idea. End quote. So what he's saying is that now, the by protruding his line a little bit forward in the center, the Prussians eventually would be able to attack him from the left, from the right, and from the center. Uh, it, it, if, if it was under different circumstances and probably under a different commander, I'd say that it would probably, it likely would have worked. But in this instance, as you, as we'll see, it does not. The Austrians had a brief moment of hope as the army of the Iser, that 60,000-man army that Bendek was trying to uh, reach out and link up with west of their current positions, turned around and started to try and link up with Bendek in his standing position. So it turned and, and it quick marched right to the battle area, but before it could get to Bendik, the uh, the hope that they might affect a breakout or add their numbers to Bendik's total force and given them way too many men for Moltke to deal with uh, was was lost because that glimmer of salvation was just that. It was a glimmer. The Prussians unloaded on the Iser army and sent it packing in a flash. Soon after the 29th of June, the Iser army was out of action completely. So fast did the Prussian rifle fire rain down on the Austrian infantry that they were unable to form up into squares to deal with Prussian cavalry. So the Iser army was getting hit by cavalry attacks, and normally what you would do at this time period is you would form up into those classic squares that we all know and love from the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, it was a great uh, formation to withhold or withstand cavalry attacks because it gave you uh, a, a position protected on all sides and a, an ability to fire on the enemy 
all the way around. Uh, in the fight between the Prussians and the Army of the Iser, they were not able to form up into those squares because they were under such heavy fire, and so the Prussian cavalry, which really plays almost no part in Konigratz itself, or very little, was uh, very effective in fighting the Army of the Iser. Bendek at this point was distraught seeing his, his potential salvation disappear, and he wrote to the emperor, quote, Debacle of the Iser army forces me to retreat in the direction of Konigratz. This is at that point where he's realizing he's got to just stay where he is, fortify his position, and hope that he can withstand the, the coming onslaught. The Prussians had done a fine job in the fighting wherever it took place, but not everything was going Moltke's way. The sheer mass of men traveling along the few rail lines available meant massive traffic jams. The weather turned and men found themselves soaked, tired, and miserable. Food began to come an, become an issue as not enough was getting to the men that needed it the most. As with most armies throughout history, this meant morale plummeted and men began to disappear. Desertion started to be a real problem for Moltke, and he realized that whatever happened over the next few days, this campaign could not go on indefinitely. So whatever was going to happen at Konigratz between Bendik and Moltke had to be decisive. Moltke's armies arrived in less than ideal shape, and even more worrisome, not all at once. His first and Elbe armies pressed the Austrian positions from the northwest and the west, respectively. But the second army was not in the line holding down his left flank. The second army was somewhere to the north-northeast, and Moltke had no idea if it would make it to the battle in time to play a part, or if it would arrive at all. And if it did not arrive at all, the Austrian numbers would indeed overwhelm the Prussians, and any hope for a unified Germany, led from Berlin, would evaporate. On July 3rd, some 400,000 men from both nations jammed into the arena and so began the largest battle in Europe from Napoleon to 1914. So I think it was the Battle of Leipzig, which was the largest battle of the Napoleonic era, and that would go all the way up to Konigratz, and from Konigratz to 1914, you would not see the same amount of massive, ma uh, massive armies fighting head-to-head -head on the continent. At 8 a.m., Moltke began a 300-gun artillery bombardment, hoping to soften up the poorly led and outfitted Austrians. The fact that he was attacking at all was dangerous, because without the arrival of the rest of his army, Moltke was heavily outmanned. This was going to be like a welterweight fighter striking at a heavyweight. He had to fight fast and furious and hope that he could overwhelm the enemy with just a flurry of blows. But if that heavyweight gets the chance to use his full power and holds up the onslaught long enough that the, the weight of the heavyweight can uh, come to bear, the results would be devastating for the welterweight Moltke and the Prussian army. Moltke was trying to force a result. He knew that the Austrians would be slow to respond, and he couldn't afford a long, drawn-out run-up to the fighting. Nor could he afford a costly running campaign. Added to these pressures, the Prussian commander had both Bismarck and the Kaiser in attendance, anxiously watching as the most important event in their lives to date played out before them. 
And even though the Industrial Revolution was in full swing, the modern day was just on the horizon, and his armies arrived to the battlefield on trains, Moltke was commanding by line of sight. The same way Napoleon and Wellington and Caesar and Pompey and Alexander himself had commanded their vast hosts. The complexity of keeping all that da- all the different data points of a proto-modern army on the move and in battle in one person's head and making decisions based on the running tally of info from that data is really hard to comprehend. Moltke clearly was under a deal of stress. But Bendek was under more. Yes, he had more men than Moltke, but he had positioned himself in a way that didn't allow him to take full advantage of really his only advantage, which was his mass. Because his staff had spent the day before the battle, July 2nd, playing the blame game and writing in their journals the many reasons why none of them were responsible for the debacle that was about to unfold, Bendek and his commanders really had to kind of create a plan on the fly and that means that they had no plan and the the idea that a army of that size was just sitting there without a plan other than wait and then hope that the prussians defeated themselves uh meant that they were going to in all likelihood lose interestingly though as bad as things were on the austrian side the prussians still had a mess on their hands By mid-morning, 2nd Army was still stretched over 25 miles, slogging its way south through muddy roads on its way to the battlefield. They wouldn't arrive until well after noon, meaning that the Austrian numbers and artillery, the most advanced and well-equipped fighting force the Austrians had, actually held its ground and then some throughout the morning. Four Prussian divisions attacked Bendik's center at Svetwald, attempting to split his army at the center and then fold each side of the line up in turn. It didn't work. In fact, the Prussian infantry got itself pounded and sent packing by the rifled field guns of the Austrian artillery. The Prussian left wing, still swinging in the wind and unprotected, started to feel pressure as Austrian probing attacks sought to outflank Moltke's line. Things were as bad in the Prussian command tent as they were at the front. The Kaiser, seeing the potential collapse of his army, screamed at his general, quote, Moltke, Moltke, we are losing this battle, end quote. The stakes were too high, and he saw his new crown tumbling off his royal head. Two things kept that from happening. One is that the enemy commander was never up to the task, and two, his own commander was a man of true steel and iron will. Bendek, had he the courage and vision, could have poured his right flank around the Prussian left and smothered Moltke's army before the whole thing had even arrived to fight. He obviously did not do that. Moltke, for his part, responded to his frantic king and kaiser, quote, Here there will be no retreat. Here we are fighting for the very existence of Prussia. End quote. Moltke recognized that there was no other option but victory. They had to stand, stay, and fight on to whatever outcome, but there was certainly no way to stop. Again, it was understood by Moltke that though this would be a cabinetskrieg to the great powers, for Prussia this was an existential moment, a fight for their vision of the future and their place in that future. The chance for Bendek to defy defeat and the moment for danger for Moltke 
both passed at about one o'clock. Pipes trilling and drums thumping, the Prussian Second Army arrived on Moltke's left flank, and almost instantly the battle turned. Though tired from marching, the Second Army was fresh for fighting, and the adrenaline kicked in. They took to their grim task with gusto, and their eleventh-hour arrival had the expected effect of gassing up the Prussian Elbe and First Armies while gut-punching the Austrian North Army. The Second Army combat effectiveness was apparent immediately as they advanced into the Austrian line, shooting holes through it and shattering an entire Austrian corps in a little over half an hour. Like, like a tactical great white shark, Moltke smelled blood. He threw in his entire reserve. He was so close now to his own personal knee, he could taste it. If his men could swarm around the edges of Bendik's line and win the foot race, they could link up and encircle the entire Austrian North Army. Not just a victory, Moltke would have destroyed Austria's ability to fight in one day. Of course, Moltke didn't quite win his knee at Konigratz. That would come in a couple years outside the city of Sedan, but the scale of his victory was taking shape by mid-afternoon. The Austrian line began to falter and then collapse by 3 p.m. The advancing Prussians had to deal with thousands of prisoners surrendering, impeding the Prussian speed forward. Shock and fear overwhelmed most of the Austrian soldiers in the fighting, but not all. Some units fought on bravely, the famous Battery of the Dead among them. The Battery of the Dead was a battery of Austrian guns near the village of Klum on the hotly contested Prussian left. They continued to fight on even as the Prussians, firing rapidly from the hip like John Wayne, inexorably moved forward. The faded battery would slow but not stop the Prussians, and they died to a man. Austrian officers, swords drawn, screaming oaths at their men, led pointless yet brave charges into the lead-laden air. A preview of the summer of 1914 was unknowingly being watched by anyone in observance of the battle. Fanatical charges led to little more than more dead and wounded. Swarms of Austrian cavalry, thought to be a standout branch of their military and better than their counterparts, could never come to grips with the Prussian infantry. The incredible rate of fire of the Dreis needle gun kept the one-time kings of the battlefield from ever getting close enough to swing a saber. Added to the hailstorm of lead were the nascent fire-and-move tactics taking form. As men could now reload from a kneeling or a prone position, they realized they could also reload from behind a fence or a wall or a cart. This cover kept them safe from enemy fire, and when in this fepvald, it meant that the enemy cavalry would be at a deadly disadvantage if it risked a foray into the forest. The only thing that had really worked for and been consistent all day for the Austrians was their artillery, and by 3.30 that too was crumbling. Gun batteries were, without orders, packing up and pulling away. Some didn't have the wherewithal even to pack up, they just rode off as fast as they could. The trickle-down of the artillery guns fleeing was that even if Bendek was the kind of leader that might be able to rally his men and effect a fighting withdrawal, they would have had no cover and the Prussians no impediment to their advance. The only hope at this point for the Austrian army was to get across the Elbe and to the relative safety of the fortress of Konigratz. Once there, it was hoped that they could regroup and fight, figure out their next moves. 
Of course, crossing the river became hard for the tens of thousands of Austrians when their commander, Bendik, once across safely himself, had several of the bridges destroyed, leaving only one for his whole fleeing army to cross. The wedge of land leading to the bridge, a mere two and a half miles wide, became a quickly filled funnel of scrambling Austrian soldiers. The Prussians, ever the professionals, pressed on pouring fire into every nook and cranny. The area was crisscrossed with trails, farmer tracks, and country roads that soon became graveyards. One infamous trail known as the Way of the Dead earned its nasty new moniker due to the sheer volume of bodies piled up along its length. One Austrian officer recalled, quote, Cavalry, infantry, artillery, trains, everything. We couldn't clear them out or restore any kind of order. Our columns were broken up. The enemy directed his fire into this overfilled ravine, and every ball hit home. We retreated, leaving thousands of dead. Finally, Phobos ruled supreme on the battlefield. The Austrian army became no more than a writhing mass of refugees. By 5 p.m. it was over as thousands surrendered. Hundreds jumped or were pushed into the fast-flowing Elbe River only to drown. Even under the supposed safety of the walls of Konigratz itself, the Austrians found no succor. The city's defenders closed their gates and even fired upon Austrian soldiers trying like mad to enter and get away from the murderous Prussians and their needle guns. As the 4th of July dawned, Moltke took stock, and for him, it was a wonderful day. The Austrians had suffered 24,000 killed and wounded and 20,000 taken prisoner. Almost one out of every five Austrian soldiers had been rendered ineffective for any upcoming possible campaign. The cost to Moltke and the Kaiser? A little under 10,000. One-sixteenth of his fighting force. Beyond the numbers, Moltke had destroyed the Austrian national psyche and will to fight. The North Army eventually reconstituted and still could field around 200,000 men. And if they could bring the other armies in Austria into the arena, they'd have about 350 to 400,000 men to fight, but it didn't matter. In Vienna, the desire for a fight was gone. By July 22nd, the Habsburg court called for an end to the fighting and for terms. Bismarck, ever on the con, was already planning his next moves, which would culminate in the collapse of the new Bonaparte in Paris and the unification of the German states. But that was down the road. For the immediate, he needed calm and peace, so he bullied the Kaiser into accepting a very limited and very reasonable peace treaty. No meaningful or sizable annexations and no real territorial gains. Instead of large swaths of land, Berlin demanded large sums of cash in the form of huge indemnities. The brilliance in this seeming humility on the part of Bismarck was that he kept the other great powers focused elsewhere and uninterested in little Prussia and her plans. Had the balance of power been truly overturned and Austria been cut up into pieces, Paris, London, and Moscow would have had to step in and right the continental ship something none of the great powers had any interest in doing. And beyond the simple demands of the victor, Bismarck had been so thorough in isolating and Moltke had been so swift in defeating Austria that the whole affair was over before anyone really noticed what was happening. 
Austria had lost its position of strength and its spot at the big kid table and would never really get it back. Internal strife and a general national malaise kept the Austro-Hungarian Empire from ever gaining real traction after Konigratz. Ineffective and easily manipulated, the former great power was relegated to junior status and errand boy for Berlin. The Empire of the Habsburgs, a powerhouse for 500 years, only had a few decades left before it was completely dissolved. Prussia, soon to be Germany, was experiencing the total opposite of its southern sister state. Millions of people would soon be added to the Prussian population constituting the Volk. The power of Prussia and then Germany, both economically and militarily, was hard to imagine. It was so exponential in its potential. Konigratz gave the Prussian state a legitimacy and weight it otherwise would have never had, but desperately needed and desired. Berlin was being taken into account in the halls of power, not for granted. And with Bismarck at the helm pulling all the right levers diplomatically, and Moltke guiding the Prussian military into the modern age of science and technology, all of Europe was put on high alert after Konigratz. A truly decisive battle and in the moment, one of the rare battles to be both war-winning and war-ending. Konigratz stands as a great achievement in Prussian and military history. But such a total and generally painless victory feels good. Wins beget wins. Why not try it again? Who else could the power of Prussian planning and military intellect be tested against? Maybe Paris. Well... I suppose we'll have to cover that when we get there. All right, thank you guys for listening. This has been Cauldron, the Battle of Konigratz. I know it's been a real pain in the neck to get this out to you. It's taken forever. I apologize. Uh, I'm not going to make any promises. I'm working on everything. I'm going to try my best to get more consistent product out there for you. Please follow us on Twitter on uh instagram it is cauldron a military history podcast uh, please check us out there and follow along as we have stuff happening uh, we have the next episode is going to be a quick hit on the war a to z feed and it'll be about the abenaki wars all right thank you guys again i appreciate you listening and we'll catch you next time <laughs>